morning. Hi. Hey, guys. And ladies. Well, thanks and so kids. much for coming to our talk today on uh, how to design tabletop games through failure. Um, we got three of us up here, uh, Scott Morris, Andrew Hackett, and myself. You guys want to introduce yourselves real quick? Uh, sure. Uh, why don't you start, and then we'll go down the road. All right. Uh, I'm Andrew Hackard. I'm the Munchkin line editor at Steve Jackson Games. Uh, I have a lot of experience with failure. <laughs> <laughs> and kicking indoors. And so, yes. Yes. Uh, I'm Scott Morris. I kind of do a little bit of everything. Uh, I work at GTS Distribution right now where I run the entire board game category. Uh, I also uh, handle the publishing side of the business for GTS, which is Passport Game Studios. Uh, and I have designed my own games as well, uh, the biggest one being uh, Firefly Shiny Dice with Upper Deck. My name is Mike Abramson. Um, I am on the opposite end of the spectrum from these guys. I just started designing games about three and a half years ago. I have my first game going through the publication process with AEG right now. I had another one that's gone to a publisher and come back and several others uh, that I've been working on over the last several years. So uh, these guys are the guys who have done this for a long time, maybe too long, who knows. Uh, and then I'm the guy who's just starting to get into here and I'm lucky to have guys like this uh, to, to talk about these kind of topics. Yeah, um, if, I, if anyone's looking for a long career in tabletop design, I had hair when I started in this industry. <laughs> get ready. <laughs> so the whole goal of this talk is to talk about how do you make positive changes through failures when you're trying to design games. We know there's a lot of different places that you could be right now and a lot of things to see here. So we're really grateful that you were able to come here, listen to us, hopefully take some inspiration and some positive stuff back from this. And then also, at the end of this, we definitely want you to be able to come in, uh, come up, share some stories of your own, if you've got any of your own that you want to say, hey, this is what happened to me, these are things that went wrong, and either say, what do, do I do next? Do not tell us about your character. <laughs> <laughs> either, either what do I do next, or even to say, hey, this is what I did and it got better. Um, how many people in here have been designing board games or tried to design a board game or you've got that one sitting on the shelf that you want to do or even that you've designed a module or a tabletop RPG or anything and you feel like at some point it just totally failed? I'm seeing... Everybody. There we go. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Here, right? like, that's the whole point of coming to a talk like this, right? Um, so I'm going to kind of get us started off here. Normally, I don't start with definitions. My, my normal job, I have to uh, go out and present anyway. But this was too good to pass up. This is the definition of failure. We're really good at defining what failure is. Please don't read it all. There's way too much there. Also, so you know, let me go back a second here. Um, we've got a hashtag of TTFail up here. If you want, after this is all done, I'm going to share these slides out so that you don't have to sit there and take notes because I'm the kind of person that would be sitting there taking notes. So... Uh, but gold star if you write down every word you see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to talk about the panel, please use that hashtag yeah. with your phones on vibrate. <laughs> uh, so we're really good at defining failure, so much so that it took two slides to put failure and fail up there, but only one slide to get the narrow definition of success. One of those definitions includes one that succeeds. So we really are kind of broad or narrow about how do we, what is success anyway? Um, but we know what failure is, and there's a whole lot of it in that definition. So how do we look at that as something sensible that we can approach as game designers? Um, so failure in game design, the way I, I tend to look at it is two different types. Objective failure, which is that tangible stuff, right? That rule is clearly broken. Um, it's impossible to win the game. That's probably a, a pretty big failure right there. Or, that would or be things bad. like that. <laughs> um, and then your subjective failures, right? Something's off. Something doesn't feel right. People aren't happy with what they're walking away from. Um, any sort of feeling that's like, uh, I can't put my word on, words to why it doesn't work. 
but this isn't working. <laughs> and these are really challenging because the tangible ones tend to be something that you can like point your finger to and say, yes, we've got to fix this. The intangible ones are so subjective at times. You could play your design with 10 people and five of them go, yeah, I really love this. And the other five people go, meh. <laughs> and you're I mean, like, where is this failing? What is going wrong with this? If you're if you're making a hamburger, a bad hamburger is a subjective failure. A veggie burger is an objective failure. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> um, and the other thing with subjective failures, it's hard to actually take it seriously sometimes. If you're sitting there and somebody's going, I just don't really like how this feels, to kind of nudge them a little bit and say, okay, why? What, what don't you like about it? And try to get that information out. It's really easy to just say, okay, well, this guy just doesn't like my game. I just noticed you wrote, the game is stupid. Yeah. Has anyone ever had harsh feedback like that? Has anyone ever had somebody say, this game sucks, I hate it, it's terrible? Okay. I work on Munchkin. We'll talk talk about <laughs> we're going to talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's good. So, um, And then, of course, there's like the really biggest failures that you could run into that you're just going to want to crawl under a rock and die afterward. Um, things like pitches being passed on, or you know, I, like I mentioned, I had a game returned. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about games that get out there and then they don't do as well as we want to, um, and things like that that just really, really hurt um, when it's all said and done. I have an interesting question, because we have almost, almost 200 people, I think, in the room. How many people have actually pitched a game to a game publisher of any type, role-playing, board game, anything like that? Okay, a few. Okay, cool. All right, just want to kind of understand. Okay, cool. Cool. Okay, so I think we all agree dealing with failure sucks, right? Um, I love it. <laughs> I love being rejected. It's great. <laughs> so that's what we want to try and talk about, and how did we actually deal with these things? Scott's going to lead us off. He's going to talk about... Um, when he developed, what, your first game? Yeah. Um, and then Andrew's going to talk about a couple of his projects, and I'm, I'm going to finish this out on our stories um, with the worst playtest ever that turned into <laughs> one of the best things that, that happened to me in game design. So, Scott, take it away. So, um, this is one of my favorite pictures. Go ahead, flip on down to the next slide. Um, this is the New York Stock Exchange floor in New York, uh, and it's pretty crazy. Uh, I don't know if I, has anyone ever been to the Stock Exchange by any chance? It's, it's pretty wild. Um, this is chaos happening on the floor. And I, I feel like this represents the board game and tabletop industry as a whole, whether it's role-playing or whether it's board games. Uh, you look at this picture and you see all these people doing multiple different things all at once. There's some people who are, you could relate them to publishers, you could relate them to distributors and all this. But my favorite person in all of this, flip on down, is Bob. Uh, <laughs> Poor Bob, If uh, it's kind of hard to see probably from, from where people may be, but Bob's little logo on his uh, shirt there matches the logo on that banner uh, to the side of him. And poor Bob is there trying to sell some software. And he's amidst all this chaos, and he can't get anyone to pay attention to him or anyone to, to listen to him. And it's just the look of objective failure on his face is, like, so dejected. And I have to be very honest with you. Uh, I've been in this industry for almost six years now, and I feel like this every day. Despite all my successes, despite everything I've had the, the joy and fun to work on, every day can feel as challenging as this. Um, but I also find it very fun when you can get through that and get to the flip side of that. Um, you can go back up to my name or whatever you want to do. I don't care where you go after this. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to be very transparent. I'm a, I'm a big believer in transparency in this industry. I feel that the tabletop industry as a whole, whether you're designing role-playing games or board games, has a lot of growing up to do. 
Uh, I think that there's a lot more creative people than there are business people, and I think that the way we all get better is by being transparent and open with each other. Uh, so I, I kind of suffered with this discussion trying to think, do I be open and transparent about things, or do I change the names to protect the innocent and all that fun stuff? Uh, and I'm not going to do that, so I'm, I'm going to be very open and very transparent about that. Um, when I first designed my, my first game that got picked up, I was not in the industry. Uh, I actually live a little north of here. I live in Austin, Texas. I spent 16 years with Dell Computer as a business development manager and executive there. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with board games and, and very boring and mundane living in a cubicle. Uh, so as fun, I designed board games on the side, but I never designed them to be published. I designed them just for my family to enjoy. And when you're designing with a very small group of people, everybody loves it, especially when it's your kids, right? If your kids look at you and say, this game sucks, you definitely have a problem on your hands and you need to, you need to look at the game, right? But, you know, for the most part, your kids and your spouse or your better half or your worse half, depending on your relationship, is going to tell you, you know, yeah, this game is fun and it's a good time. Uh, I had developed a game, uh, ironically, don't. This is, this, nope. is, this is where the don't punch me part this nope. way comes in. We're fine. Um, my son and I were playing zombie dice, uh, and he said to me, he goes, you know, you don't really, if, if anyone doesn't know zombie dice, this may not make sense, but uh, you don't get shotgunned on turn one. You have to have really, really bad luck to get shotgunned on turn one. And you don't really get shotgunned on turn two, so you have to, again, have pretty bad luck. And he looked at me and he goes, we should make this harder. So that's where it all started. And we started on the idea of making a pressure luck dice game that was going to be very, very hard, uh, very challenging, and, and, and challenge the players to make good decisions. Uh, and we did, and we loved it. It was this orcs versus goblins thing. It was like heroes versus bad guys, and it was really cool, and we had a lot of fun with it. And then one day I'm sitting at Gen Con. Does everyone know what Gen Con is? Yeah, okay, a lot of people are shaking their heads. Good. Um, if you don't know what Gen Con is, it's like a 60,000-person board game convention and role-playing convention in Indianapolis. It's great. Go to it's it. It's basically like PAX, except without all the boring video game stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now the PAX people cut our mics off. <laughs> so, um, so I was playing the game uh, at 2 in the morning with several friends of mine at a hotel, and the brand manager for Upper Deck, Jason Brenner, who's a very good friend of mine, walked by, and he's like, what is this? And before I could say anything, buddy of mine's like, oh, this is Scott's game. He's pitching it. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not showing anybody this case. This is just, this is just for me, right? And uh, he's like, well, well, show me. Like, teach me how to play the game. And he sat down, and we taught him how to play the game. And it was by no means a formal pitch at all. Uh, and we knew each other for maybe a year, I think, at the time. Um, so we weren't, like, best friends, but we were acquaintances and knew each other. Uh, and at the end of an hour and a half of playing it over multiple plays, he looked at it and he goes, this is awesome. I want to make this game. And I was blown away. I mean, it was like as high as you could get, right? It's like, here I am. I'm not trying to pitch. I'm not trying to do this as a living or make money off of it. And like, you know, a little 13 year old in me was like, yay, this is great. Uh, and then we got into development, which is the D word as I call it. <laughs> Uh, and the first thing that happened was I got on a phone call and I got told that it was going to be licensed for Marvel, which was awesome because I was like, this is cool. I love Marvel and I can do a lot of stuff with Captain America. And we did. We spent three and a half months uh, redesigning the game for Marvel characters. Uh, the abilities were the same. The actions were the same. All those things were going on. Um, but, you know, we had different things like Captain America shield throw and, you know, Hulk smash and things like that put into there. Uh, I think I have to pay Marvel $18 now for saying that. Um, so 
I'm still working at Dell at the time. I'm not in the industry, working in this industry at all. And I'm at a conference for Dell, and I get a phone call, and he goes, are you sitting down? I'm like, uh, no, but I, I can be. Like, this, this doesn't sound good. Like, no, no, nobody ever says, are you sitting down by the way you won the lottery, right? So I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, um, I'm sorry to tell you, but we're canceling the Marvel game. And I'm like, uh, immediately crushed, like just instantaneously, like, oh my God, this sucks. And then the second thing that went through my head was, he paid me already. And <laughs> I immediately said, uh, that's cool, I guess, but like, you already paid me, so how does that all work? And he's like, no, 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 you're fine. You can keep the money. And I'm like, well, this is going to work out weird. And he goes, we're still going to do the game, though. I'm like, oh, okay, so we're just changing the game. We're not canceling the game. He's like, no, yeah, we're going to change it. Uh, we're going to change it to Firefly. And then the 13-year-old and me did a backflip and went nuts because <laughs> I love Firefly, like, so much. So I was just thrilled. But then I realized, I was like, oh, my God, I just wasted the last three months of my life changing everything into Marvel. Now i got to change it all again into Firefly. Which I'm going to tell you right now, if any, has anyone ever heard about the pizza boy syndrome, about how if you deliver pizza, you never want to eat pizza? You just, you're around it all the time, you don't want to do it? After three and a half months of designing a game for Marvel, you don't ever really want to watch another Marvel movie. And after three and a half months of watching, sadly, all 13 episodes of Firefly again and again and again, you can lose that sheen of what you love really, really quick. I don't believe you. <laughs> Try it. I have I have watched it in the three months that I or three and a half or four months that I developed it to Firefly. I think I watched the entire series of Firefly eleven times, and it was it was pretty crazy. Does that include the movie? Uh, no, because we didn't have rights to the movie, I which was interesting. Casually, so uh, yeah, sure, sure. But I'm talking like in a row, <laughs> in a row, right? Um, so we did all that, and we and we transferred it over, and it was great. And then I got a phone call. And they told me that we had a licensing issue. Uh, the first one was that we didn't have rights to one of the characters we put in the game, so we had to do a little bit of development work with that, but that was okay. The second one was harder. The second one was um, we have a license with Fox, and we need to be able to fit so much art into the game. And I'm like, well, there's like 16 dice. Like, I mean, there's only so many ways you can do this. And they're like, yeah, right, so you need to go make another component for your game. And I'm like... But that, that's not the game. <laughs> and they're like, right, go do it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, no. And, and the, the kind of just, I'm a very up and direct person. Uh, I just didn't want to do it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And they're like, well, you have to do it. I'm like, no, I don't. Like, this isn't like slave labor. Like, you can't just tell me what to go do. And they're like, actually, it is. They're like, you signed a contract, and this is what it says, and we need this, so you have to go do it. And that was a real harsh gut punch reality check of, I should have read that contract a little more. Um, because I wasn't in the industry, and I was wanting to make a game, and I just wanted to have you know, a thing put out there, and I kind of skimmed through a lot of it. And there was a nice little clause that said that at the request of the person that wrote the contract, if they wanted me to add something, I had to add, I had to add it. Uh, and on top of that, we had three weeks, uh, which after spending six, seven months of development is not a lot of time. 
Uh, I mean, it's enough time to watch Firefly another four times. It does. Yeah, it does. Uh, Ironically, in that three weeks, I didn't watch anything, which was even harder. Um, And I did. I had to create these mission cards for the game, and I hated them. I I personally absolutely hated them. I hated the mechanic of it. I hated it. I felt like it was shoehorning stuff into it, and I didn't like it at all. And I got it to play test groups, and I made a huge mistake. And I made all of the playtest groups people that I knew that were all Firefly fans. And all of them were like, yeah, this is great. Get a mission, get a crew, keep flying. This is great. It's awesome. And nobody really objectively looked at, <laughs> nobody really objectively looked at, does this work or does it not work? And is it actually good? Like it's fun, but does it work? And they're two totally different things. Um, and I gave it to Upper Deck with the intent of, you guys go check it out and test it and make sure it works. And that didn't happen because it was my responsibility in the contract to get that done. And I didn't. And when it went to print and the next thing I know it's off and, and it's getting done, I'm like, whoa, 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 we haven't checked this. We haven't like done all this stuff. This is, this is, this is radically crazy. And they're like, no, 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 you gave us something that's good. We're, we're good to go forward. And to this day, it was, I mean, that was like almost six years ago now. Um, there are people who come up and tell me, they absolutely abhor and hate that mechanic inside of the game and that I ruined Firefly for them, which is so much fun. Uh, and yet I have people just as recently as last week send me messages through Board Game Geek or other means like that telling me how much they love the game and how challenging it is and how it's one of their favorite games. Um, so I learned a massive amount of stuff in between those couple of months working with Upper Deck. And mind you, I love Upper Deck. I love the leaders there. I love the people there. They are great, and they do a very good job with the things that they work on. Um, with our situation, it was just very tough and very contract prohibitive. Um, but I learned, number one, uh, it's okay to fail. Uh, Tom Vassell and I are good friends. We developed a good friendship over the last couple of years. And when he reviewed my game, he absolutely slaughtered it. And Sam Healy on the Dice Tower absolutely loved it. And I told him, I said, you know what? It's painful. It's really, really painful to watch your baby get shredded in front of you. Uh, but the video review that they did had both good points and bad points. And it was kind of like count, counterpoint and counterpoint, which was really good. Um, I also learned that... Uh, you want to read every contract. <laughs> uh, if you get into this industry and if you start designing, make sure it, it, you may you know, get a signing bonus of whatever amount of money for, for doing your game. Use some of that to make sure you have a lawyer read through that contract. There's a lot of things that you want to make sure are in there to protect you. Um, and quite frankly, I learned that it's okay for you to stand up and say, this is what I want. Um, a lot of people, and I've seen it now being in the industry, working in the industry for six years, they do the exact same thing that I did. Uh, Mike and I talked about this when he signed his game with AEG. They just jump on the first thing that somebody gives them because they're like, oh, somebody wants to sign my game. This is great. I want to do it. Uh, and that's not always the right thing to do. It's not always the best thing to do for you. Uh, you want to make sure to say, this is what I want. If you want to have creative freedom over your game, ask for it. The worst thing they can say is no. And they're not the only publisher. I mean, you walk down there right now for the board game area, there are hundreds of publishers here. There are thousands of publishers in the industry right now. Uh, crowdfunding and, and Kickstarter and things like that have opened it up that there's so many people that can create a game right now that publishing a game really has really low barriers to entry. So don't just presume that whoever you're talking to knows everything, because they probably don't. 
because uh, again, a lot of creative people, not a lot of business people. Um, so there's a lot of things to learn in that. I'm happy to talk more about it afterwards if anybody wants to. If you've played the game, happy to hear whether you loved it or hated it. Uh, whether, either way, I'm happy. That's okay. Um, but the thing that I learned the most is learning to deal with it's okay for people to hate what you've created because you're not going to make everybody happy. I have yet to see any game, even the best games that get released. Um, Scythe is one of the best games, in my opinion, released in the last decade. And I meet people that hate Scythe, and that's fine. They're wrong. It's fine. But <laughs> um, it's totally okay. And, and, and I've talked to Jamie Stegmeier a couple of times. He's an acquaintance of mine, and we've talked about that. And, and it's okay for people to not like your stuff. That does not mean you have failed. I, I've been able to say I put something into the world that people still play six years later and still have fun with. And that's not always easily done. So uh, it's definitely a hard road. It's definitely roads that at night you're going to like bang your head against the wall and go, why did I do this? I'm stupid. I'm crazy. Uh, but then there's days where you do actually push through that stuff that Bob had to push through and you actually feel good, which is really good. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Cool. Andrew, you're up. All right. So I'm going to talk about two, two case studies of games that I worked on uh, a few years ago. Uh, the first one, uh, I'm actually going to digress slightly, and I'm about to spoil Return of the King. Is there anybody who has not seen that movie? <laughs> That's the one with Luke Skywalker, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> yes. So uh, Return of the King is a glorious epic and lots of battles and lots of stuff going on, and we got up to the climactic scene, that beautiful scene on the side of the mountain, where they crown the king, and the four hobbits are there, and Aragorn says, my friends, you need kneel to no one, and the entire group kneels to the four hobbits. I get chills just talking about it right now, and I'm like, this is awesome, this is a beautiful Hollywood ending, and I can go pee, and wait, this movie's not over. And we have another 30 minutes of getting the hobbits back home, and dealing with all of that, and getting them off to the Grey Haven so Frodo can sail to the west, which is a beautiful conclusion to the story, but it's not where I thought the story was going to end. And I've read the book, but I was like, this is Hollywood. They're going to cut off that last bit. This beautiful Hollywood scene is it. And I was, it was a little bit of a letdown to have such a quiet ending to such an epic story, even though it does bring everything full circle. Um, so I was thinking about that when I was working on a game called Ninja Dice. Now, there are at least one published game called Ninja Dice. This is not that one. Um, this was a wonderful game with custom dice, several different types of custom dice, where you're sending your dice to attack the opposing forces and taking them away, and it's a war of attrition, and the last player with dice left wins the game. And I really had fun. I was designing it. I tested it out a few times. And as I was playtesting it, playtesting is very important, Scott. You should do that. I did. I just did it with the wrong people. <laughs> what I learned was... Because there were some really cool, impressive dice in my Ninja Dice game, those are the ones that got taken out first. And then the last third of the game was just the boring base dice going up against each other until one player only had one or two left and everybody else was out, and then the game was over. And the first half of the game was really fun. The dice were cool. The mechanic worked really well. Everybody had a good time. And then it was kind of like, okay, but then I lost my special dice, and I just had the base dice, and then I was just kind of waiting for the game to end. And that is not a good thing to hear in your playtest feedback, especially when it's true. And that's kind of the feeling I had at Return of the King where, okay, I mean, this is, it's still doing what I want to do. I need to get the hobbits home. 
but it's not the fun part of the movie. It's not the glorious battle and the spectacle and the big sweeping Howard Shore music and all of that. So that game has never and will never see the light of day, uh, at least until I figure out how to fix it. But that's an example of now I can, that's something when I'm designing other games, I can look for, does the game end before the fun does? Because that's the, the goal you want is people having enough fun that they're like, I want to do this again. When the fun ends before the game does, then you have people walking away from the table disappointed at best, bored at worst. And then they're not going to replay your game, and that sucks. So that is my first case study. The second one, um, who here has played Munchkin Quest? Who here has played Munchkin Quest more than once? Okay. Um, Munchkin Quest is a game that I really like that has a couple of fundamental flaws. And Steve and I have had this discussion. This will not be a surprise when he listens to the recording of this. One of the flaws in Munchkin Quest is the entire Munchkin series is a game based on interaction with the other players at the table. And in Quest, you can have players going in opposite directions and they literally cannot interact by the rules of the game because they're in different parts of the dungeon. Um, that is not its only flaw. It also, every turn takes way too long to play. But the biggest one is, because there's no possibility of interaction, I can be off on one side of the dungeon and have... 30 minutes where I'm just waiting for my turn. And that is deadly in a, in a game. So we were working on Munchkin Quest 3. Uh, that is a title you will not see in our catalog. There's a reason for that. And we had a bunch of ideas. Uh, we wanted to add gender-based rooms and effects, monsters that keyed off whether you were male or female. Uh, Steve wanted to put in a new level, put in stair tiles, which take you up to the second level of the dungeon. Um, and we wanted to figure out a way to reduce the problem of we have four players each going a different direction and they can't actually do anything to each other. Uh, so we introduced a mechanic called portals that actually let you cross the dungeon or do things across the dungeon much more quickly. And this was awesome. We had this great expansion with some really cool concepts that were working against each other. It turned out that the gender effects in the gender rooms actually made it harder to move around, made it harder to succeed in the game. Uh, the stairs going to the next level was bolting on more of the same of the thing. It's like, okay, well, we've got another level of the same rooms and same effects we have. It's a way to get characters even farther apart from each other. The portals actually were doing what we wanted. They made... The, the way that the portals work was if I'm over here but I'm next to a red portal, I can go to any room or affect any room that's also next to a red portal, even if it's all the way across the dungeon. So if you're fighting a monster, I can throw a potion through that portal and make your fight harder, which is the interaction that we want in a Munchkin game. So what we ended up doing was saying, these are all really cool ideas, but they're not solving the problem we need to solve. We want to speed up the game, and we want to make it so that there's things you're doing not on your turn. So we carved off the portal piece of that expansion. Two-thirds of that expansion is still in a box on my shelf, unpublished. The portal part we actually released as its own supplement and said, this is a way, if you've been saying Munchkin Quest isn't interactive enough, isn't fast enough, this is a way that you can do that because we also made the portals really cheap to use. So you duck through a portal for just one movement point and you're all the way across the dungeon or right next to the entrance where you can fight the boss monster and win the game instead of spending three turns moving all the way back the way you came to get there. 
So that was a case of it wasn't failure, but we had an expansion that wasn't doing what we needed it to do in, in com uh, completely, and we had to find the piece of it that was working and go ahead and publish that. And so, I mean, that's finding success through failure is taking the piece of it that is working and saying, let's use that, or keep working on the rest of it. So a couple of stories where things weren't working and we said either let's put this on the shelf and look at it again later or find the part that does what we want it to do and leave everything else aside. Yeah, I love that particular story because it is so much about finding the fun in something that you know, maybe collectively might not have been, but then finding that one piece that suddenly made the whole game better and sure. then releasing that is just... The, the really hard part in that, and, and this is the, the challenge of being a game designer, is you have a concept and you have an idea in your head of what you want the game to be. And, and like to your point, you're like, well, this is cool. Like We want the things to do this, and it should be cool, but it's not. And the experience doesn't deliver on that cool factor. And sometimes what does solve for that isn't what you envisioned as a designer. And that's some pretty hard decisions to make about, okay, this is what makes the game fun. Sure. But this is what I want the game to do, so how do I cross that bridge? Um, and that's really hard. I've talked to a lot of designers who have told me that they have things in their game that they don't personally like from a mechanic standpoint or from a design standpoint, but they know that that makes the experience of playing the game better, which is ultimately, at the end of the day, what's going to help everybody. Um, because like you said, if it's not fun and you're not playing it again, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what you want, right? right. But those are, those are challenging moments to move through. And those are things that you have to ask yourself as a designer, like, am I okay with that? Can I live with that? And um, you also, as you pointed out in, in talking about shiny dice, you get too close to your game, so you have to take yeah. it out and play with other people because the 10th time that I am playing the same Munchkin set... It isn't fun for me regardless. <laughs> um, it's your 10th pizza. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, that almost leads to blind play testing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, that was an amazing segment. <laughs> I should get, I should get paid that. for that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, these guys have talked about that experience in the trenches and all of that. This is uh, an experience I had in my first, oh, gosh, year working on what is very has become my favorite project that I've worked on. Um, I call it the guy in the hat. I've told this story to a, a lot of my friends before um, because it was the worst playtest experience I thought I had ever had until about 24 hours later. So um, 10,000 Goblins is a game I've been working on uh, now for about three years. Um, it's effectively a dungeon crawler where you're collecting dice, you're racing to try and defeat this boss goblin before anybody else does because you want to join the Adventurers Guild and so do they, but only the first one that gets it done gets to join the guild. I just realized something before you continue on. Yep. Do not take the theme of the fact that everything we've talked about has dice in it, that if you're designing dice games, you're going to fail. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, when I brought it to PAX in 2017, it was the first time I actually did real public playtesting. There were a lot of components. Um, you know, that's a, a picture of the table. Um, when I looked at it, though, I was like, oh, I need all of this. Like, this is what I need. This game is amazing just as it is. It needs all these poker chips. It needs all these dice in order to, to play well. Um, and I had a lot of people that liked it when I was here at PAX. I had people come back to play it multiple times. I had people liking my Facebook page for it. Everything was great, right? Like, this is perfect. I don't have to do anything else. 
I like your line of nothing could possibly go wrong. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. If you hear that from someone, something. I don't like how you just slid the fact that there's a Facebook page right in there. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, so, so then I take it. There's a, a great group. I, I also live uh, in South Austin. Um, and there's a great group called the Austin Game Designers and Playtesters Meetup that meets in the Austin area. Um, great group of people. And that for a while, in 2017, 2018, they were doing, uh, I don't know if they still are, but they were doing a weekly play test in Northwest Austin. Um, this was just after PAX, maybe a month. I went, you know what? I'm going to go to this. I'm going to take it there. This is my victory lap. Maybe there's a few things. They're all going to love me. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's going to be great. This is going to be perfect. This is where I met the guy in the hat. The guy in the hat is not the name I had for him after this play test, but it's the name I'm going to use here because there's probably kids out here. Um, so we sit down. It's a four-player game. I've got the guy in the hat sitting across from me. I've got my buddy BJ that's sitting at another corner, and a guy named uh, Steven who was uh, there as well playtesting a game that have all sat down to play with me. And we start going through the game, and there's three dungeons that you're trying to work your way through, and we're, I think, through or just finishing the first dungeon. And all of a sudden, the guy in the hat says... Can we stop? And I went, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he had his own game. He probably wanted to play test it as well. You know, it, it takes a little while to get through the game, and, and that's fine. I said, yeah, you, you, no problem. We can stop. And the next thing he does is go, do you want feedback? And I knew by his steepled fingers, by the look in his eyes, and the tone of his voice, I did not want that feedback. But that's why we play test, right? Of course I want the feedback. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury that thought. And I'm just going to go for it. I said, well, yeah, of course I want feedback. And the first words out of his mouth were, I think your game is fundamentally flawed. So I sat there calmly. <laughs> and I let him continue to just destroy my game. Uh, he had all of this feedback. And this is not all of it at all. And this isn't even after a full game. This is yeah, after this a is half a game. Not this even is half. This is like a, almost yeah. a third. Yeah, and, and the first dungeon is the one that's supposed to introduce you to the game. and yeah. Get you in, yeah. Right, and it was, it was just everything. It was the components. It was the time around the table. It was um, the numbering system I was using for leveling. All the number of dice on the table that I was even using, and we were passing around poker chips. It was your face. It was <laughs> kind of stupid. And for yeah. the most part, I was sitting there and just letting him go. There were a couple times I was like, yeah, but, and, and tried to interject a thought, but then he would just rail right against it. So I let him go, and I was like, you know what? When he gets done here, maybe I can figure out what he thinks I could do to make it better. And then he stood up and walked away. And I didn't get to have any of that retort. And I didn't get to have any of that, well, what would make it better? And I was a burning pile of rage. But I sat there, and I tried to calmly have a conversation with Stephen and uh, BJ about, okay, well, this is what he was saying. Maybe this makes sense. Maybe these are things that I can do with it. Stephen actually showed up right when he got up and walked away, maybe 10 seconds later. And I see this bottle of water come over my shoulder, and he goes, you all right, buddy? Because he knew what had just happened. The first thing to do in that situation is vent. Um, I had a lot of emotions sitting in there, and I was trying not to vent about it. BJ and I went around the corner to have lunch before he had to drive home, and I had to drive home. And very quickly, I started letting out my complete feelings about how that playtest went. And by the time I left to drive home, I'd gotten rid of that, all of that emotional rage. Well, most of that emotional rage. And it's completely natural to be, I hate that guy. 
Like I'm so I angry at that guy. I mean, that is that oh, is yeah. a natural reaction of like, oh my god, I can't believe someone railed on me that much. Why, why do you think the guy in the hat looks like a spy from a villain movie? It does. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. The second step, though, on that drive home and after I got home, was trying to go. Okay, he gave me so much feedback, and I took notes. I have the notes on it. Um, I started trying to think through it and going. Okay, what if this was just a thing he felt, which is still valid. I still had to keep track of that. And what if this was stuff that maybe there actually is something mechanically wrong that I can fix? And the things that I really, really locked onto were, okay, yeah, having to get 267 points for max level out of poker <laughs> chips is maybe a little bit much to be passing around the table. Um, and things like that that made me go, okay, maybe there is a better way. Um, and then the next step of that was to take all that negative stuff, right, that made me just feel like uh, this game must be awful, and turn it into something better. Um, so I did. I added abilities to make the dice he thought were useless more important uh, by interacting with those dice a little bit better. I did things like remove all of those poker chips and the item chips and all these other things and completely replace the leveling system because, as it turned out, I didn't have to give arbitrary values to each of these goblins in experience points. I could just count the number of goblins you defeated and figure out how far you advanced. And it absolutely helped things like speeding up the, the time around the table. So after all that, the most important thing is getting out there and trying again, right? I took all of that. I took it back to the game developers meetup. There actually was another meetup that Monday. So I spent the entire weekend just getting all of this done and redesigning huge portions of my game. And when I took it in there and I told the group, and again, I, I went in feeling like, man, this is a sign of defeat. The group was really, really positive about the fact that I'd done all that. And the guy in the hat was there. And he turns around and he goes, hey, I'm sorry about how I attacked you the other day. I was having a really bad day. I was having trouble with my own game. Um, can I try what you changed in this? I'm curious what you did with it. And he did. He sat down. He played it. He loved a lot of the things I did. We still disagreed on a lot of things, and that was fine. That's the playtest cycle, right? And so the thing for me on that was not immediately thinking that I had failed just because my game got picked apart and he was right on a lot of it. And through all of those repeated failures, Goblins has gone from a game that did sprawl the table that did make uh, you know, any publisher who looked at it kind of wince at the number of dice, though they still kind of do. Yeah, I, yep. um, <laughs> and into something that is a little bit more manageable and definitely something that is a whole lot more streamlined, a lot more fun to play, and has a lot more variability. So all of that repeated playtesting failure turned into something that was really, really positive going forward. So that's really the whole point of the stories that we were trying to share is how can you take those failures, talk about the things that hurt, you know, get real with you guys on that stuff, and then talk about how can we use that to make it something really powerful to make your own games better. So, you know, I think the, the, the main points we've come up with here are not fearing failure. Don't be scared because you you're felt like your game failed or because it did fail. Get out there again. Try again. Because the faster you fail at something, the faster you're going to figure out, I can do it better. And this is what I need to do better. And that's the whole learn from it part, right? There are positives even if you know the worst kind of cases happen and a Kickstarter you put out there completely flops or something like that, there's some there's a reason, right? Figure that out and and take that forward. Um, and I don't have it on a slide here, but the other thing that has been really good for me, um, especially from these two gentlemen here who I've met through all of this process, is raising <laughs> up people who are dealing with you know the dregs of being in that failure. Um, there have been times where I have gone, should I even be designing games? Maybe I should just stop. And if I had, I wouldn't have my first game signed at this moment. And even now, there, <laughs> there's development struggles going through sure. that whole process as well, just like what Scott was talking about. 
Um, and having other people, being there for other people who are going through that and helping pick them up is really, really important, I think. There's also a, um, and we could have a whole entire other panel on this if we wanted to, um, there's a lot of people that I talk to in this industry who talk to me about imposter syndrome. Um, does anyone not know what imposter syndrome is by chance? So it's, it's when you feel that you're being the imposter in the room, you feel that you are not supposed to be here, you're not worthy to be here, you don't have the credibility to be here, that everyone else is better than you. Um, they're going to find me That's out. like me right now? Yeah, they're going to find me out. You right. Yeah, no, no, it's not. Um, yeah, it's, it's, they're going to find me out. I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. Um, I have talked to some of the biggest designers who have made some of the most money in this industry, and they have that just like everyone else does. Um, this is a very creative industry. It, it is a very heavily relying on creative minds to do this. And when you're creating anything, I don't care if you're you know, doing video or podcasting or painting or games or book writing or whatever it is, um, there's always someone that you look at and you're like, man, that's the person I want to be like. I want to be as successful as that person. Um, and it's always a good reminder to me that those people started in the same position that all of us started in as well. They had never wrote their first book or never designed their first game or never wrote their first song or anything like that. And they had to get out there and try that stuff. Um, and there's failure in every industry and there's critics in every industry. Um, and sometimes a little bit of the hard part is deciding what is failure and what is just criticism because they are two totally different things. Um, this is not an industry where it's the 13-year-old and all of us can just jump up and go, yay, it's great. This is a business. And there's a lot of things that you got to get through to design fun. And I, I say this, it's a serious business designing fun. Uh, and it is. Um, but the things that Mike has on here about failing fast is really important. Um, you want to be able to, to fail and understand where you failed and know what you want to move forward and change with. Um, it's a little cheesy, but one of my favorite lines in the world is from uh, the original Batman movie with Christian Bale, where Thomas Wayne says, why do we fall down so we know how we can get back up? And that, that's a really important thing in this industry, because you will fall down a lot. I still fall down every day, but I get up every day, and I make sure of that. So. Wasn't the original Batman movie? It yeah. should be. <laughs> Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. That's right. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're supposed to, I guess, in presentations with a quote or something. But I did find this one. It says, success consists from going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. I don't know if that's Winston Churchill or not. That's what it said it was. But it was a really good quote. That's what Google said. What we were talking about. So, um, and real quick, before we uh, stop for questions and, and comments and so forth, I just want to mention all the uh, icons and stuff I use are on gameicons.net that are free. Um, I use this in prototyping all the time. And you're supposed to give attribution. So there's my attribution. Yeah. But also... Use it if you're designing games. It's really, really Great helpful. Great resource. Also, and, and drop those people on out and say, thanks for this. This is awesome because that's the only payment they're getting. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, and then the slides that came from Slides Carnival because I thought this was like the coolest uh, background ever. So anyway, thanks. Um, there's a mic up front here, uh, and there's also a mic right here. As but, I lovingly <laughs> say, everything is on the table. Feel free to ask any kind of questions yep. you all have. And thanks so yeah, much. seriously. And if you don't want to ask questions or stay around for questions, answers by yeah, all means. We'll be outside. Yeah. <laughs> we have no Fire away. Uh, all right. Uh, oh, is that, yeah. can we get that on? I don't think it's on. Is it plugged in? There, there we go. There you go. <laughs>
All right, so guys, um, I really have a, a question from somebody who, you know, a, a lot of us uh, will bounce around different creative ideas. Uh, those of you who are going, thanks for coming. We yes, appreciate thank it. Thank you. We know there's more panels, so yep. have a good day. Things from this. Oh, yeah. Be good. Yeah, round of applause. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> And so what I want to know is, when you guys make your games, and, and really this goes to all three of you, do you have a problem disconnecting kind of your baseline? So the goblins would be a perfect example, and then the orcs, uh, and the bad guy when you first make it. And then you're like, but I'm going to have to retrofit this to meet whatever the publisher changes it into, be it Marvel or anything else like that. How do you stop yourself from getting too attached to the creativity part of it rather than the mechanical part of the game? Sure. Uh, for me, I use my spouse, my wife, a lot. Um, she does play games and I use her to kind of be like a divining rod for me to kind of keep me grounded on stuff. Um, I thankfully married a woman that will tell me when I'm doing something stupid and not just, you know, yeah, you're great. <laughs> she doesn't um, have a lot of time for anything else. No, she doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is pretty hard. It's also, it's doubly challenging because some publishers will tell you as a designer to do it all and other publishers will be like, hey, cool, thanks, see you later. Right? Like they'll have either their own development person that they contract with or a development person possibly in-house. That's very rare. I, I only know like three or four companies, mid-weight companies that have on-staff developers. Um, you do, I find it best to take at the end of every session, whatever, it's not every day, but I mean every session that you do on design, just kind of take a step back and make a list and, and kind of pros and cons kind of thing. Say what you want and what the developer wants, start listing that stuff out and then applying that to what you did that day. Uh, which is a little bit extra work and a little bit extra time, but this is an industry where the more time you put into designing, the better it's going to be. So, I will say one of the things that, you know, both with Goblins, as you mentioned, and other games that I've been working on, I try to take a step back and say, because these guys have warned me, hey, your theme might get butchered, just so you know. Yeah, don't get uh, married to anything. <laughs> is, you know, what else could this be? Like, what other things could this fit in? So, like... Goblins could be a space marine game where you're buying different equipment and you're taking on some sort of space alien thing or something like that. Um, I've got the game that we're working on now with AEG was called Guild Leader, and it was this idea of a fantasy guild that you were building up, but it could be anything. I mean, uh, when I was even doing the art for that, um, I tried to keep it as simplistic as possible so that it was really easy for that to get replaced and rethemed as it went along. So I think the fact that you're aware of that and that it could go away is really one of the key things so that you can step back and go, what else could this be? And make sure you, you haven't just pigeonholed you, yourself in the theme, unless it's a really good theme. Yeah. It's like the, whole the other theme. thing, too, and, and I'll, I'll say this real quick, um, I said don't get married to anything. Like There's a lot of people that will come to put, pitch a game and they'll be like, oh, this is the greatest Western game ever made or the greatest space game ever made or whatever it is like that. Um, if you do that and you, and you have something that you're like passionately like driven towards, like if you have the best underwater werewolf mermaid unicorn game ever made and you want that to be a thing and the publisher says, okay, I love your game, I think this is cool, but I want it to be a western game or whatever opposite thing of what it is, it's completely fair for you to say, cool, how many more do you think you can sell like that? That's a completely fair question because if you are adamant that I have to have this game be this way, that's fine. Understand that there's going to be publishers that may pass on that because they think you're you know, possibly being difficult or possibly being too attached to it. But if they do tell you, you know, we think we want to take it from you know, this fantasy theme to you know, something completely else, 
ask them, say, okay, cool. How, how much more successful do you think that's going to be? How many more units do you think you can do? That's a totally fair question to ask. And if they can't answer it, red flag. <laughs> so so uh, they basically have covered what I, what I was going to say, and we've got several more people, so thanks a lot. <laughs> Mr. Berg. Hey. <laughs> um, on the topic of failure for shopping for publishers, uh, what are some other red flags to look out for when you fish? That's a good question. That's a really good question. <laughs> um, speaking from the publisher side, um, we're open to negotiating some things, but I would say watch out for deals that don't have reversion clauses. Because if they stop publishing your game, you want to be able to get it back from them. Yep. And if that deal doesn't have a reversion clause, you have sold away the rights in perpetuity. Yep. <laughs> so there's got to be some way, either a time-limited license or some clause that says, if sales drop below this level for this period of time, you can say, all right, I'm recovering my rights so I can take the game somewhere else to get it republished. That really is the big one, I think. Um, there's a lot of little things, and you usually get into the contract details about stuff like that. Um, if somebody isn't willing to offer you a contract, or Ooh. seems a little sketchy when you say something about that, that's usually a sign of like a Kickstarter publisher who's just got an idea and doesn't really know how to do it. Um, the other one too is, um, and this is going to sound really strange, but ask them for other designers that they've worked with for contact information for them. If they won't share that, that's a big risk. Um, Another I'm, question, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I signed a game at Origins uh, Gen Con last year uh, with um, Renegade Games, which is under development right now. Um, and Scott Gata, the owner, was super nice about, yeah, you want to talk to this person or talk to this person? Like, yeah, go ahead, right? And got very, very good feedback, both positive and challenging around working with them. But that, that's a good thing to do as well. Uh, another fair question to ask is, how do you see yourself marketing this game? Mm -hmm. What sorts of things are you going to do to try to sell it? Do you see this as a flagship? Is it a Gen Con release? Is it something you're going to kind of push out the door in February when you hope nobody's noticing? If somebody says, oh, we got a Facebook page, we got a Twitter page, that's not marketing. That's, that's just social media. That's what people do. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks. Hi. Um, my question is predominantly for the panel. Um, you guys harp a bit about playtesting. My question is, is there any sort of metrics that you look for when you do playtesting so that you don't like get blindsided by future feedback? How do you exactly gauge when the feedback is valuable and isn't valuable? That's a good it's question. A really good question. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of it's an art. I'm sorry, Mike, I totally talked over you. No, that's okay, go ahead. But I'm going to continue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is I've been, I started at SJ Games in 2000, so I've been doing this a long time. And I have, you have to be able to sift this is what this particular person doesn't like from, no, this is it's the objective subjective thing. Is it an actual problem with the game? And part of that is if I take the game to four different playtest groups and they're all giving me the same feedback it's probably a real thing. Um, but there's also subjective of, if I'm designing a Munchkin game, I want it to play between an hour and an hour and a half. If it starts getting into about two, two and a half hours there's probably something wrong and I need to Check it out, try it some more, and see if that's a problem, again, with the game or with one of my playtesters who's holding things up because she can't decide which cards to play. 
Not that anybody's <laughs> So I told you I worked with Dell. Dell is a very metrics-driven organization, like massive metrics-driven. Um, I'm kind of um, anal or thorough. My grandmother used to say people you like are thorough, people you don't are anal. Um, You're detail-oriented. <laughs> detail-oriented, yeah, there you go. Um, I will track playtime. I will track playtime by player. Uh, I will get average playtime. Um, I will do it by player count, so two, three, four, five, however many players I go to. Um, it's interesting to me because there's a lot of people that will tell me from the publishing side of the business, they're like, oh, your game is two to five players. Man, I really wish it was six. Like, I, I really wish there because then we would have three couples and everyone would be happy. And then you make a three to six player game and people are like, oh, I really wish I play two players. And it's extremely challenging to make a board game that's good with two players and also good with six players. It's really hard. That's why there's so many two to five player games. Um, so yeah, I, I will track, like I'll sit down and say, okay, this is how many players we have. I'll track the age of the players as well. I ask them for that so that I can see, you know, if I'm playing with a 14 year old or a 15 year old, does it take them longer? If it does, what do I see them getting hung up on, right? Um, the real big successes in the industry right now are coming from games that are broad reaching, meaning you could teach your grandparents or your grandkids. So being able to say that you know this doesn't have a steep learning curve or this is really easy to pick up but hard to master, those are really good things. Um, they're not always the most helpful mechanics, but I have found that it helps me drive to what I want, which is usually about 10 minutes per player per yeah. game. So I'll also ask people, particularly if I don't know them, what are some games you already like? What is your favorite game? Because that tells me the sorts of things. If I get somebody who sits down to play Munchkin, they're like, my favorite game is Twilight Imperium. <laughs> I know their feedback may be a little... Thank you, yeah. sir. <laughs> and I always go in with something specific that I'm looking for, but I'm also looking at uh, a set number of things. So, like, playtime is a big important one for me. It's making sure it's getting around the table fast. Playtime per player becomes important. But also, I'll go in and go, okay... You know, I might even see the playtest group and go, I need somebody to do this strategy and see, is it viable or not? Um, so if I'm seeing the same strategy play over and over again, can I tweak a mechanic a little bit? And now is that same strategy happening and why? So so having a mission for that individual playtest, but then also pulling that other stuff. And the other thing I will say is making sure that you don't just write it off because because you feel like, oh, well, that was, you know, they just didn't like that kind of game. Because right. a lot of the feedback that has done really beneficial things for me have been people just having a feeling of, oh, well, it needs something else. And I'm going, then maybe it's not your game. that I would never have added the things that it needed. Yeah, so, I think we've got time for maybe one or two quick oh, things. Yeah, no, we thanks got, for yeah, it. We've got a good amount of time. Yeah. Uh, this is a more general question on, like, writing and this kind of stuff. That, like, what do you do to, like, are you getting clear, honest feedback back, and what can you do to get more honest feedback from people? So at, at Steve Jackson Games, we actually have paperwork. We have forms that we cut down from a full page to a half page, because I said this is too long, where it is, we have specific questions, and we said, don't stop and wait to the end of the game. You know, Jot down notes as you think of them. Is there is there a card that doesn't work? Is there a mechanic you don't understand? Are you having fun? That's a question on our places. Mm -hmm. Was this a, was this fun? Do you want to play this again? Why or why not? Uh, and I use those. I use those, but I also watch what's going on in the group because there are people who really don't want to disappoint you and will not give you the a fully yeah. honest accounting of their feedback, even when you specifically say that's what you want. But if you watch them during the game. They're not having fun. Yeah. They are really not vocally not having fun. But their play just one is, 
this was a nice game. I look forward to buying it. You know, yeah. um, it's also good to do anonymous surveys. I found afterwards, not everyone you know fills them out or anything, but just tell people you know if you have paperwork, you know you can fill this out here. We'll also have an anonymous survey like through SurveyMonkey or something like that, so people can do that. It's really well. There are always going to be the guy in the hat that will just crush your soul and your dreams. There's a lot of people who are not kinda, you, sir. yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot of people who are I, I call them the guy in the hood who who want to crush your dreams, but they don't want to do it to your face, so they rather do it online so that's always a good opportunity as well too so i also think neutral parties if you can get somebody who's either not you if you're the designer of the game in there when you're the designer and you're showing and you tell them oh yeah i've been working on this game or designed this game they're a lot less likely to be like oh i'm gonna crush this guy's soul unless they're the guy in the hat um, <laughs> but you you're a minion of that guy i can yeah. crush your soul <laughs> but, and I, I will admit to a couple of times saying oh yeah i'm, I'm testing this game for a friend or that mm -hmm. for my own game to see if the feedback changes and it will yep. absolutely will change the way they um talk about it so using a neutral party also trying to get feedback this is the hardest thing in the world for me trying to get feedback without saying anything during the actual play test just oh. doing that Silent play the test where you test. let them get all the way through yeah. and you don't comment on no that's not how you play that and all of those things. It's yeah, I I've done I think maybe only two or three right now with goblins and every one of them I'm watching and just trying not inside. to cry um, <laughs> yeah. and make expressions. So so yeah, neutral parties and blind testing are definitely ways to get that more on the screen. Cool. Hi. Hi. Uh, okay, so. Oh, you have notes. <laughs> I like this guy. I'm taking lots of notes. That's uh, okay. I've been trying to word this question right in my head, so I'm going to hopefully say it right. I'm okay. Watch it, sure. uh, but I, uh, I, I like developing board games as a hobby. Um, and so when you're just showing, you know, playing a game with friends or whatever, you can use just like scrap paper and like some dice you found in the board game in your closet or whatever. Um, and so what, uh, when you're playing, when you're showing a game to someone else, uh, what point do you start getting like finer components? Um, how, I'm really trying to word this right. Uh, how pretty do you make your game yeah, when you play yeah, test? Yeah, kind of how pretty do you make your game when you play test? Sure. And uh, um, are there any good resources for maybe getting like cards print or like basically like, good resources for getting those kind of nicer components to kind of build? Sure. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, Thegamecrafter.com is amazing. Um, you can get tons of print-on-demand stuff from them. Um, if you're just looking for cards, there's places like drivethroughcards.com and things like that. Um, I uh, One of my favorite pitches ever, uh, Emerson Matsuuchi, who most people know in board gaming, he's one of the bigger designers. He's done Century Spice Road, Vault, and several big things. Um, I was at uh, Dice Tower two and a half or three years ago. And he said to me, he goes, um, I don't, like, I, I can't pitch you this game because I've already signed it with somebody else, but I'm happy to show you the game. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And he goes, um, I, I don't know, like, do you get offended if it doesn't look good? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I'm, I'm fine with that. He goes, cool. Pulls out a stack of diner cards that, like, a waiter or waitress would write your order on. And that was Century Spice Road. <laughs> and I was like, this is, and, and I got it. Like, I mean, if you're working with a publisher who understands the mechanics and designs of games, mm -hmm. it could be on the back of a napkin, and, and it's totally fine. Um, I have seen the opposite side of that spectrum. Reiner Knizia, Dr. Reiner Knizia, who's one of the most famous design, game designers, his prototypes look like published games. I mean, they are unbelievable. Like, you sit down with one of those games, and you're like, wow, we're, we're done. <laughs> like, we don't have to do anything. Um, uh, and and it's, it's really a personal thing up to you as to what kind of presentation you want to make with it. I can tell you from experience, the 
better it looks, the better the reception is first moment. Um, but it can also lead to a little bit of a publisher going, hmm, is this just a good-looking veneer and there's not much underneath it, right? Um, so my suggestion to everyone, kind of keep it middle of the road, right? Um, it's totally fine to print your own cards, put magic cards behind and put them in a sleeve and go with that and everything, and that's the way a lot of games do start. So yeah. Stick, You can get blind dice and put stickers on them. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you guys for coming. If, you, if the three of you who have extra questions, feel free to stay yeah, after. We we'll, can we'll, talk we can outside, outside the hallway and everything. Yeah. So, totally so anyway, yeah. thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm.